please be seated. Amen. What a wonderful, wonderful morning to be here worshiping the Lord. And God is so good to us, isn't He? Bringing us into this place, allowing us to worship Him. I'm sure that you've been blessed already in these few moments of singing. I pray you have. I pray that God uh, would continue to bless you during this time. Um, I want to invite our children up real quick here. If you guys, if you're a child, I have a special job for you today. So if you're, if you're a child, come on up here and just meet me right up here in the front. All right. Come on up here. It's okay. Any kids that want to come up here and get a special job, it's an important job. All right. Is that everybody? Oh, one more. Here we go. Hey, Oliver. All right, thank you, children. You can go sit down. You guys did amazing. They had one message to proclaim to you today, and that is that Jesus is Savior. Now, can you guys repeat that with our kids? Ready? One, two, three. Jesus is Savior. That's right. We say that because we believe that's true, right? Now, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about God calling us to move from this gathered space right here on Sunday morning where we come and worship God, hear the gospel, proclaim worship and glorify Him, and to leave this place to scatter out into our community and do the exact same things that our kids just did. And so our kids are leading us now by example, showing us what it means to proclaim the glory of God and tell people about Jesus. They just stood up in front of this church and told y'all that Jesus is Savior. Now, I think that we can probably leave this place and do the same thing. What do you guys think? All right. So we're in a text in Acts chapter 8 today, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 8, during which a tremendous amount of persecution falls upon the believers living in Jerusalem. And one big idea is communicated through this part of the text that I want you to take home today. God uses all circumstances, all circumstances 
for His glory and for your good. Okay, child of God, okay, Christian, okay, Jesus follower, maybe you need to hear this today, all right? I don't know what kind of circumstance you came out of. I don't know what's going on outside of these walls and and those doors this morning. I don't know what's happening in your life, but you need to hear this message today. God uses all circumstances, whether great or not so great, whether good or evil, whether intended for your welfare or not, God uses all of those for His glory and for your good. So whatever it is that you're walking through in your life right now, whatever it is that's rolling through your mind when you hear that promise from God, I want you to hear it and I want you to let it settle in your heart. And if you don't believe me, you will by the time this message is over. We begin in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. What had happened just at the end of chapter 7 was the man Stephen, who was called uh, by the apostles, the early church, to be one of the seven who, who served in waited tables, who cared for the needs of the widows who were in need, found himself in the middle of something he probably never imagined he would do. Standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful council in Jerusalem, given an opportunity by God to stand on a platform and tell them about Jesus. At the end of that message, they wholly and completely rejected the gospel. They threw him down, they stoned him, and they murdered him. He went to be with Jesus in heaven. Now we proceed in this part of the text. I'm smiling because it's about to get really awesome. Saul, verse 1, Saul agreed with putting him to death on that day. A severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them into prison. This seems like it's, it's pretty horrible, right? None of us would ask to go through this. Luke here in verse 1 introduces us to Saul. Later, we would know him as we, as we continue on our study of Acts. He'll be saved by the Lord Jesus and his name will be changed to Paul. He will be one of the most magnificent men used by God in the New Testament age in proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. But he's not saved yet. Saul is in direct opposition to Jesus and to the church. He's opposed to him and the movement. He served at this time as the official witness in the stoning and murder of Stephen. So he's the one that stood there and acted as the official essentially giving everyone permission to do what they did. They laid their coats at his feet, and he stood and watched. Now the murder of Stephen, in verse 1, closed one door and opened another. A special season of fruitfulness in Jerusalem ended. You won't read anymore in the book of Acts of any great movement of God in Jerusalem. Because God at that time moved from that center of Christianity and moved them out in concentric circles around the neighboring towns, cities, and countries around the world. Next, for the people of Jerusalem, a very intense and secure persecution will begin. 
It's almost as if the religious leaders became emboldened in that moment to do horrific, inhumane things once they murdered Stephen. The persecution was so intense that it says here that all of the Jerusalem church scattered into the neighboring towns instead or except the apostles. Specifically, they went out to, and this is important, listen, and, and specifically it says they went out to Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria. Let's go into our Bibles. Turn it to Acts chapter 1, right at the beginning. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, shortly before Jesus ascends to go to the right hand of the Father, the last thing that he says to his disciples before he goes, he gives them a prophecy about what will happen in their lives and in the lives of the church. Acts chapter 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That already happened. At that, uh, shortly after that time, right before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would fall on the apostles, on the disciples, and then upon all believers in Jerusalem at that time who repented and trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. It says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where we were up to Acts chapter 7. The Holy Spirit fell. The apostles preached the gospel. Thousands upon thousands of people were saved. They were doing miraculous signs and wonders to draw people to faith in Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. But that's not what Jesus said would happen, right? Something else is going to happen as well. Look back at Acts, uh, Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. What does it say? In all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now this intense persecution has begun. And where did the people scatter to? Judea and Samaria. And then later we'll see through the ministry of Paul to the ends of the earth. The apostles didn't scatter with the others. We don't really know why. Could have been because it was mainly Greek Christians that were run out of town. We do know that the apostles stayed, felt called to remain in Jerusalem, and remain an anchor there for the Christian church. What we do know, however, is that God used this persecution to fulfill His redemptive plan for the world. You see, church, we're in an age where God has designed to redeem the world. Do you know that? Between the time when Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of the Father and the time when Jesus returns to be with us and to take us home into heaven is the age of the church. And during that time, there's this amazing open door for people to come to faith in Jesus like no other time in history. It is during that time that the gospel will go out and God will redeem the people of this world who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So Stephen has died. Verse 2 tells us that some devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. They, they wouldn't have done that without a cost. You see, according to Jewish law, they were allowed to bury Stephen because that was appropriate to do. But they weren't allowed to mourn, to lament for him because they believed that he died as a criminal. 
So these believers burying and mourning for Stephen were taking a step of faith in order to honor a godly man who died proclaiming the gospel. Saul, however, verse 3 says, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So Saul's escalating persecution of Christians matched the actions of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The word there, translated ravaging, was usually used to describe the way a lion would rip apart and devour its prey. That's how horrible the things were that Saul did to the early Christians. Just imagine if Saul came to Key West. He would come into your home. He would identify the believers. He would drag them out and throw them into prison. Now, the prisons then, at that time, they didn't have cable TV and nice warm beds and air conditioning and all that stuff. You oftentimes didn't get fed. You oftentimes died of disease and illness and and a lot of other things. And so to be taken away from your family and put in prison was essentially a death sentence. Imagine the husbands without wives. Imagine the wives without husbands. Imagine the kids without parents. I just wanted you to understand the gravity of what Paul was doing in the church. And this is what propelled and compelled the believers to leave Jerusalem. They were running for their lives because of this persecution. When we read this part of the text, it's easy to miss God's redemptive action in the midst of such horrible persecution. But we're driven back to a text like Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Now, listen, I could spend an entire sermon unpacking just that verse, Romans 8, 28. But I want to I just focus just on one part of that and apply it to our lives. God is actively working out the very best possible eternity for believers even in the midst of the horrible things that take place in our lives. So even the things that happen in your lives that are contrary to the will of God, God redeems those things for His glory and for your benefit. It wasn't God's will for Stephen to be stoned, but God used his murder as a catalyst to fulfill his purpose. The gospel would spread from Jerusalem and into Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. There's a story that I've woven into the sermon today that I still uh, am in awe of every time I tell it. I had a friend in Jacksonville who's a pastor named Thule, and he was a, a Burmese man from modern-day Myanmar, um, and he was from the Karen people. Now, he lived a a good portion of his life in a refugee camp because the place where he lived in Myanmar was riddled with civil war and persecution, and he escaped uh, barely with his own life. So Thiele found himself in a refugee camp as a believer. And as he tells the story, God just sort of placed it in his heart to tell people about Jesus. And so he's in this refugee camp for years. Now, living in a refugee camp, it probably wasn't as bad as prison, but the conditions probably were. 
I can think of a hundred things that I would care more about in a refugee camp than telling people about Jesus. But that's what the Lord compelled him to do, and so that's what he did. So Thule, during his time in the refugee camp, as they did their very best just to stay alive, uses his time to share the gospel. And as Burmese brothers and sisters begin to get saved, before he knows it, Thule's got a church in this refugee camp. And as a reluctant leader, as many great leaders often are, he tells his people, you know, we need to find a pastor. And they turn to him and tell him, you're our pastor. And he reluctantly accepted that call from the Lord and pastored a congregation that the Lord built up using his witness and testimony in a refugee camp. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a minute. The hard truth that I want to share with you today is that according to 2 Timothy 3.12, which I spoke about last week, all of us will encounter oppression and social pressure and even persecution when we follow Jesus and walk the path of righteousness. The question is, how will God redeem your persecution for His glory? How is, going to God, how is God going to use the dirty looks I get from my coworkers and neighbors? How is He going to redeem the job I didn't get because I was open about loving Jesus? How is He going to redeem the sacrifices I make in giving financially to my church and volunteering my time? How is He going to redeem those relationships that, that just can get over the stumbling block of the gospel? That's a question we have to ask. That's a question that God answers in this text this morning. So the next thing we have to ask is, we know that there was intense persecution in Jerusalem. We know that the people and the believers, except for the apostles, left Jerusalem and scattered into Judea and Samaria. But what did they do when they, when they went, when they left? Did they just run for their lives with their hands up? I would have run to another town. I would have hidden myself underground and probably had a good reason to keep my mouth shut and just waited for it to, 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 to blow over, right? Anybody else? I, I feel like that would have been a significant temptation. Thank you for being honest those of you that raised your hands. That would be our first intention, especially if, you're, if you had a family, especially if you had a lot to lose. It would have been easy, very, very easy, just to close it up and wait for it to blow over, right? That's not what they did. Let's see what they did. Verse 4, Acts chapter 8. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. That right there, folks, that's crazy, Right? These people had to leave their home because they're Christians. And as they were leaving their home, picture them walking down those roads telling people that Jesus is Savior, just like your kids did when they walked down those aisles. Grabbing people on the side of the road. Have you, have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard that the Messiah has come? His name is Jesus. At the wells, as they gather water, let me tell you about Jesus and how he changed my life as they did business and trade in the cities, as they, as they spoke to someone about maybe getting a job or having some kind of work to take care of their family, they feel overwhelming desi excuse me, desire and passion to tell people about Jesus. As a result of their intense persecution, two things happened. 
The Jerusalem believers were scattered from Jerusalem and into the regions of Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 11 verse 19 also tells us that they went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, the Antioch mentioned there is the Antioch that received Paul in and then ultimately sent him out to be a missionary, and I'm so thankful they did that. When the Jerusalem believers scattered to cities all over the place, the text says they went on their way preaching the word. Now that phrase, preaching the word in the Koine Greek, is interesting. When you hear that phrase, someone preaching the word, you probably think of this, right? You probably think of me or someone else standing at a pulpit, preaching and teaching the word of God. And that's good, because that is what it means, but that's not all it means. It also means the continual, informal, natural process of telling people about Jesus. That's kind of a tough definition. Why is it tough? Because now all of a sudden, all y'all in this room just got hooked in to being preachers of the Word. Do you know that? That tells us that it's not just the job of the preacher or the pastor to share the gospel and to tell people about Jesus. It's every believer's calling from God to tell people about Jesus. This doesn't say the apostles left Jerusalem and preached the word. It says everybody else did. The carpenters and the blacksmiths. The the mothers and the grandmothers. The farmers. Did you know that historically, since the beginning of the church, that the layperson, the believer who's not necessarily called into the ministry in a formal way, has been God's primary instrument of spreading the gospel. Did you know that? That y'all are God's plan for the world, for the lost in Key West, for those in the Keys that do not yet know Jesus, for those in Florida, the United States, around the world. Wherever you are, you're God's plan for that person to hear about Jesus. And sharing the good news wasn't necessarily a formal thing, although it was at times. We see examples in the book of Acts when Paul would stand in front of a a group of people and preach like this, like I'm doing now. But we read often about how it happened around dinner tables and at the market between mothers and their children. That's how God desires for the gospel to go out as well. The other thing we see just from this one verse and from the entire testimony in the book of Acts is following Jesus wasn't just a part of their lives like I've got my Jesus time and then I'm going to go to the grocery store and and then I'm going to, you know, cook dinner. At the end of the day, we're going to go to the beach. Jesus saturated all that time. They were so passionate about Jesus that that passion infiltrated every part of their lives. Let me, let me give you a quick example. We have any grandparents in here? Any grand? Oh, y'all are kind of like in the back over there? Okay, okay. Do any of y'all have any pictures of the grandbabies? Miss Alice, you got a picture? Can I come back there and see them? Okay. So Miss Alice is a proud grandmother. How many grandkids do you have? 
one, two. Oh, there it is. All right. Can you tell me about those two grandchildren? What are their names? Miles and Mike. Are they pretty awesome? Do you love to see them? Or do you live near them? No. They're with you here. You're visiting? And you let me come talk to you? That's. Thank you so much. That's amazing. We're glad you guys are here today. So you love your grandkids, right? Would you do anything for them? You're pretty passionate about them. Yes. You let me come talk to you because you really wanted me to know about Miles and Mike. Miss Alice, did you find that yet? Not yet? Okay. Well, we'll try again another time. I know that y'all, that others in here are passionate about other things. Oh, Camila. Hey, Camila. I have something I want to tell you, okay? And I want you to answer this question, all right? Boxed cakes are way better than homemade cakes. Is that true? Boxed cakes are way better than homemade cakes. No. 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 Camila makes, she bakes cakes. Uh, as a business, so of course she's passionate about cakes, and she would never serve someone a box cake, would you? It's not right. Okay, she's passionate about cakes. I'm going to leave y'all. For everybody who participated. Alice, you, well, it's too late now, but I appreciate it. Okay, she has 15 grandkids, and you could probably take time to tell me about every single one of those grandkids, right? And you could tell, if you want Alice to, to give you a good story, ask about the grandkids. You'll be there all day, and it'll be great, and she'll smile the whole time. In fact, every grandparent, when I asked about grandkids, immediately smiled. They can't help it. They love their grandbabies, and Camila loves to bake cakes. She was very passionate when I told her that box cakes are better than homemade cakes. She actually had a grimace on her face because she was so furious that I would say that to the whole church. So we're passionate about certain things, right? Grandkids, cakes. Anybody in here like fishing? Yes. We got a cadre of men. They gather in the, in the foyer before church, and they talk about fishing. They show pictures of their fish, like y'all do with grandkids, only the little fish. I caught this fish. Okay, you get it. So you know the passion we have about things like that, Right? That's good. God put that in your heart, and God gave you that for joy and, and for your business or whatever, for your family. But that passion that we have about that, that's, that's the passion that the disciples had about sharing Jesus. So what does that have to do with our current passions? Well, when we love and have a passion to love our grandkids, when we have a passion for Jesus, guess what we're doing? We're teaching our grandkids about Jesus. When we have a passion about cakes, and our business, we use that business as a platform to share the gospel, which I know Camila does. When we have a passion about fishing, we use fishing to share the gospel, which I know Drew does. God calls us to be so passionate about Jesus that every aspect of our life is saturated with him. Thule, let me tell you about him. So God was gracious to him. This is what he, these are his words. And God allowed him to come to the United States as a refugee. And he got to come to Jacksonville where I was serving at the time. And I got to meet him. And Thule had this passion in his heart 
to continue being a pastor and sharing the gospel. So he did what's natural to him. He did what he was doing in the refugee camp. He just told people about Jesus. And before he knew it, Thule had like 50 people that were saved. 50 Karen, specifically, were the people group that he was reaching. Before he knew it, that group grew to be 85 and then 100. And then they needed a, a place to meet. And he continued to grow and reach his people. And before we knew it, one of our Baptist churches up there let him meet in their facility. And they grew and worshiped God and honored him and continued to share the gospel. Thule and the Karen people underwent horrible persecution in Myanmar. They were scattered around the world. Some of them were with their kids. Some didn't get to bring their kids with them. Others had a mom or a dad that was back home. What I'm trying to say is... They had a lot of excuses that we would accept as reasons not to worry about sharing the gospel. Where our counsel might be, you know, just why don't you just worry about, you know, like getting a job and finding an apartment and, and you worry about getting your family here. You know, do all that first and then you can worry about all the Jesus stuff. That's not how they live. They share the gospel and they're so passionate about Jesus, they did that through the best of times and the worst of times. The strength of Thule's ministry was that he met people where they were in the midst of all circumstances. Some were having great days, some were having bad days. He met them where they were and he shared the gospel with them because he loved Jesus. Because Jesus radically changed his life. The, or the last part of this text describes Philip. Like Thule, or Thule maybe like Philip because he lived well before him, met people where they were in the midst of their circumstances. Look at verse 5 with me. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Now that seems really simple, and you, if you're just reading in your annual reading plan, you would read that and be like, okay, great, now just read on. Just remember, Philip, first of all, he was one of the seven that were chosen by the apostles to serve the needs of the widows. His buddy Stephen was just stoned for sharing the gospel. So Philip, by God's grace, he escapes out of Jerusalem, and now he's in Samaria. I can think of a lot of things that would feel more important when I settled in this new city than sharing the gospel, which is something that got my buddy stoned earlier. But Philip's passionate about Jesus. He goes to the city, and he proclaims the Messiah to them. He's telling them about Jesus, the Messiah who came and brought eternal life. That's how much he loves Jesus. That's how passionate he is about Jesus. Verse 6 continues. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame, and the lame were healed. So God's given Philip the ability to do miraculous works as signs that Jesus is the Messiah. Philip goes to the people of Samaria and proclaims the gospel. And now we see something different, a contradiction. When Stephen did that same work in Jerusalem... And then stood before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they wholly rejected him and then murdered him for it. 
Now Philip's in Samaria, doing the same thing, proclaiming the gospel, doing miraculous works, pointing people to Jesus, and instead of them getting angry, it says they paid attention to him. And then verse 8 continues, said there was great joy in that city. Well, no doubt there's great joy. The lame were healed. Those, those who had demons were exercised and, and brought into a clear mind. Later, next week, we'll see that many of the people believed Philip's message about Jesus and became followers of Jesus themselves. Imagine the great joy in that city when that happened. Imagine the great joy in our city if we would all leave this place and tell people about Jesus. Imagine the joy in the one who is caught up in a life of sin looking for hope, finding hope in Jesus. The one addicted to drugs is clean. The, the alcoholic is no longer drinking and destitute. The one who needs a home or a job is, is connected with people to find purpose and work. These are the things that Jesus does in the lives of the broken. Relationships are restored. Marriages are healed. Imagine what could happen here if we would leave this place and tell people about Jesus. Well, let me finish up our story about Thule. His little church that started in a refugee camp outgrew the place where they were meeting. And we started to pray together about what we could do next. Meanwhile, there was a church on, in a part of Jacksonville, um, and the members were, were getting older in age. Their pastor retired. They were struggling to, to, to um, minister in their particular community, and they were down to about four people. Their building needed a lot of attention. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know who would take the baton at their church for the future. And then God worked and brought us all together in a room and I introduced the, the church to Thule and his church and Thule's like, oh, we've got all kinds of people that live in that community. And we prayed together and we developed a strategy together and before we knew it, Thule's ministry moved into that church. They fixed it up, the building. The people who were there, they spent time there worshiping with them and celebrating with them about what God did. And his church is still there today. That's not the end of the story, though. After I left Jacksonville, the Burmese people, many of whom settled in Jacksonville, were from different tribes in Myanmar or Burma. These same tribes once fought one another. Now, the people in, in America didn't fight, but their parents and grandparents did, brutally. So they had stories about what, you know, that tribe did to my people, what that tribe did to my people. God laid it on their hearts, on the Karen and many of the other Burmese groups that were there in Jacksonville, that they're Christians, and they should be united in faith. They should forgive the past. And that's what they did. And so shortly after we left Jacksonville, they had a, a unity worship service. 
And they brought the tribes they could find in Jacksonville together. And they celebrated Jesus, the one who unites all people. No matter where we're from, no matter what we did, we're brought together by the gospel through the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers. What is our part in the gospel story, I wonder? Our church has a beautiful history in this city. God's done some magnificent things here in the past. And He's doing magnificent things now. But our future has yet to be written. Fifth Street, the question is, how will God use the circumstances we're in, whether great or not so great, for His glory and for your good? Will we follow Thule's example? Will we follow Philip's example? Will we follow the mother, the grandmother, the grandfather, the blacksmith, the farmer, the ones who left Jerusalem, who scattered into a foreign place without jobs and homes? Will we follow them and their example? Will we go into the future trusting in the Lord and telling people about Jesus? We're going to transition now into a celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Bible is clear about how this is to be done. It says first that it's to be taken by believers in Jesus. And so, we, we ask and, and celebrate anyone who's turned from their sin, trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're not there yet, if you're not following Jesus yet, I'm going to give you a chance a little bit later in the service to come forward so we can talk about that and pray together. It also says that we're not to take this time lightly, that we're to test ourselves, prepare our hearts. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, was so magnificent that we should be prepared spiritually to celebrate it. So we're just going to take a minute now and give you a chance to pray, to come before the Lord, to confess your sin to Him. Or if there's a brother or sister here in this congregation that you need to make things right with, you can do that as well. And after just a couple minutes, then I'll come back up here and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you have not yet received the elements, they're in the foyer, so during this time, you can feel free to get up and go to the back there and grab those elements if you've not done so yet. So let's take this time now and prepare our hearts to celebrate what the Lord's done, to prepare for the Lord's Supper.